Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Now, radio check. Now, radio check on. Half hour is ago, 50,000 miles. Oh, that sound is beautiful. Right. This is Bradley J on Air Control. We're listening at dawn. And our radios are tuned to 1030. In our cars, it's locked on WBZ. Affirmative, I read you. What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose. Here, Jay, talking. We're live, midnight to five. It's kind of a sad day. The other day it was the third, I think, anniversary of the death of David Bowie. And David Bowie meant a lot to a lot of people, and probably few more than me. It was a it was a bad day, and uh, I bet you. Jim Sullivan had a bad day that day, too. Jim, thanks for calling us. Uh, happy to be here, if uh, I can say that, I suppose, in a, such a uh, still a sad situation. Yeah, so how do you want to approach this? How do you want to remember the great one? Well, I, I, was, I posted some things on my Facebook page, as I want to do, and then I was just looking through some of that and thought, this is one of the from one of the interviews I did with him back in '97, um, and I just love the way he answered this question. I was talking about rock and rollers kind of slowing down or mellowing out as they age, and I asked him why hasn't that happened to you? It's a great quote. I'll just give it to you as quick as I can. He said, "I think I've had the advantage of not believing in myself as a rock person. Therefore, I don't think." that I imbued those qualities that were so much a part of the rock character, which was agelessly young, being the permanent social rebel in that stereotypical fashion. Think back to that early line, this is me now, he could play the wild mutation as a rock and roll star. And he said, I don't feel myself being such an integral part of rock in that way, but somebody who utilized the rock platform as a way of expressing themselves as an artist. So maybe I was not weighed down with the thinking of, hey, I'm a rock god. You think he thought that through beforehand or made it up as you Here's, I swear to God, Bradley, I was thinking about that, too. I, I believe that is just the way his thought process worked. I mean, sure, I'm, he's got things in his head that he said before. Maybe he said that before or something close to it. But isn't that articulateness just <laughs> terrific? It's sick. Yeah, it's unbelievable to be able to answer in a deep yet real way like that on, on the spot. Right. You know, I mean, sometimes these days, you know, uh, rockers or other people will do email interviews so they can think out their answers and edit and all of that. But that was just right off the cuff, phone interview. Yeah. A lot of times if you ask an artist a significant question like that, they don't have the ability to answer. And so they give you a flip answer that kind of is embarrassing to the asker, as I'm sure you know. And that's not yeah. something Bowie does. 
Not at all. No, I mean, one thing I really enjoyed about talking with him, and I mean, I, I saw him a bunch, obviously, as did you, and, and I did, I think, three or four interviews with him. He treated interviews as conversations, and it wasn't just a case of me throwing a sort of a cliche question at him and him coming back with a cliche answer. I mean, he really considered what was being asked and really thought it through. And I mean, I had immense respect for him, obviously, before that, just as from what he's did over the course of his career, but I mean, in getting to know him in the way that I did, which admittedly is, is as an interviewer, not as a, uh, an intimate, uh, but it was just so impressive that he brought that kind of brain power and linguistic skills and, and just logic uh, and to he, what he did. He did seem to enjoy the conversation. It wasn't merely a duty that he was doing a, a good right. job I mean, at. He seemed to like it. Exactly. And I mean, obviously, there's a promotional aspect to it. Uh, if he's talking to me, if he was talking to me, you can bet it was before an album release or a concert coming to Boston or something in that uh, respect. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, there are artists who sort of do it uh, in an obligatory fashion. Uh, sometimes these days you will be told by a publicist you have, you know, 15 minutes or 10 minutes. <laughs> so keep it tight, wrap it up, you know, don't go off track. And, and it wasn't like that at all with Bowie. It was very open. Why don't you go for it and relate all your all the times you met him? Oh gosh! Well, in person, once uh, at Foxborough, the Sound and Vision tour. Um, so most of what we did was on the phone, as as happens in the daily journalism world. I was with the Globe for uh, 26 years, I guess, all told. Um, you know, so yes, most of it was phone chat. Uh, so as as best as you can get to know somebody over the phone, I guess that's what I'd say. In person, when I did meet him, he was uh, Mr. Gracious, warmth, uh, you know, just uh, uh, happy, happy to oblige. What, what year was that? I'm, I'm trying to place I think, that. Uh, I think that might have been '97. It might have been before this interview. I'm trying to think. Um, yeah, it was actually. Yeah, this. I'm just looking at the copy now. Yep, he was '97. He was playing Foxborough on that one. So that was the one that he was supposed to play his uh, hits one last time and be all done with them or something. Yeah, that right, was right. the. That, yeah, that was the. I'm going to retire my catalog tour after this. And I remember going to the show and you know hearing you know one of the songs, whatever it might be, uh, pick your favorite that he played, and just kind of having a little tear, you know, going, oh, this is it. I won't be hearing him play this. I again. know, but it wasn't true, of course. <laughs> no, it wasn't true. <laughs> and, and he he said he was going to retire at least once before that. Oh, he threatened to do that, yeah, at least once before that. I mean, several times, I think. I mean, I think the big, uh, it wasn't really a fake-out necessarily, but remember when uh, he retired Ziggy Stardust, uh, which his band didn't know about, no one knew about it when he took the stage and said, this is the last time. He said, said, not only is this the last song, this is the last show we'll ever do. And they went, what? Right, right. Well, you know, and of course he was talking about the character that was Ziggy. He yeah. was retiring the Ziggy character. And he was retiring uh, the band, too. Well, he was retiring. That's right. The Spiders from Mars were no more. That's right. So, uh, yeah, that's that's correct. He he certainly shifted uh, musicians uh, frequently. Uh, they, he used them for different purposes, and I don't mean used in a in a bad way. I mean, they, uh, they fit certain parts of his sound or career at certain times. Uh, Boston people will remember Reeves Cabrera was his longtime guitarist, uh, maybe the longest. I'm not really sure. I heard it was the longest. I think it may have been, and he played in the band Tin Machine, uh, which Bowie formed, and they released two albums. And 
the cool thing about Tin Machine, not a lot of people liked it. It was most people, I guess, considered a low point of his career. But the cool thing about it was uh, here was this major rock star, a solo artist, who actually decided to go back or to, to go into a band format where he was, yeah, maybe the main attraction, but one quarter of the sound and not playing any of the catalog. That was the place where he did retire, Bowie. Uh, and he played Tin Machine material and cover songs. He played Roxy music songs. Um, you know, so I, I mean, I respected that move because that was such, you know, from a commercial point of view, suicide, right? Yep. Uh, and, and again, that's not something foreign to him when he started working with uh, Robert Fripp and Brian Eno, uh, the trio of sort of electronic albums he made with Low and Lodger and Scary Monsters. Same sort of thing. I mean, he was taking a big risk in uh, letting a part of his audience go and maybe attracting others, but certainly telling some of them who had cottoned to the hits or had gotten used to a certain kind of glam rock sound or flamboyance that Sorry, that's not here anymore. What do you think when he took those chances that were clearly non-commercial? Do you think he, A, didn't care, or B, thought he was so big that people would have to like it? I think more A, and actually, it's a good leading question. We didn't plan this at all, Bradley, but I'm, I'm looking at something he said. This was from a 1990 interview, and I asked him about the shape-shifting, the changing, the constant change, obsessive change almost, and he said, well, he was laughing. He said, I really can't change my focus. My force, my, I'm sorry, my focus is very short-lived. I'll fool around with a side of art or a side of music or whatever, and then my attention is not there anymore. I don't wish to take it any further. I've done what I want to do with it, and then I move on. That just happens to be the kind of artist I am. I'm not sure whether that means I'm a chameleon. It just means that there are so many aspects of music that are interesting to me. It really is fun playing in there like a big playground. I guess it's just that the thing he was doing wasn't fun anymore, so he went to do something else. I think so. I mean, he, he enjoyed the challenge of making music in new arenas. Uh, you know, I don't mean uh, arenas like stadium arenas. I mean just sort of uh, different places in different genres and mixing different genres or uh, finding out something new that was happening in the underground and then kind of co-opting it for his own use and his own style. Um, and, and, you know, sort of that restless curiosity that he had throughout his life and was evidenced very much at the end with, uh, you know, that final final record that came out, well, what, two days before he died, his yeah. birthday, right? So we're speaking with Jim Sullivan, formerly Globe, still doing stuff. By the way, what is, where can people contact you, see your stuff now? Oh, Cape Cod Times, I do things. I do things for uh, a place called Best Classic Bands. And what about and Inc., Inc.? Not doing the website so okay. much anymore. Uh, I am mostly contributing to other venues. Good. Um, anyway, there's a different, bunch of different things. Talking about Bowie, and I just posed the question. I actually asked Jim to talk about the value Bowie had to those who felt a little on the outside and gave him the courage not to uh, shrink but to own it and gain confidence. And once you do that and get a little positive feedback, then your life can go on and you can thrive. And that was a real valuable service that Bowie provided. Uh, no question about it. I think what I would say, my discovery with him was as a teenager in 1973. Uh, when was yours, Bradley? When did you, he first enter your world? He entered my world when I went to my first concert ever 
at the Boston Garden, and it was the Station to Station tour. Ah, okay. Uh, so how old were you at that point? That's a secret, Jim. That's a secret. Fair enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, in radio, you never get old. <laughs> no, uh, what I was going to say as a teenager, I think what it was was uh, any teen feels a certain amount of angst about who they are, what they're going to become, how they should dress, look, uh, you know, everything. And I think, yeah, Bowie gave people, yes, that certain courage of an outsider uh, who looked different than, let's face it, in that era, you know, it was mostly... Uh, blue jeans and long hair and uh, you know t-shirts right that was uh, right. the dressed down rock era and and Bowie glammed it up dressed it up and whether that was you or not um, he did say look this can be done and look how entertaining it is and look how fun it is and I mean obviously uh, you know, his, I guess, shall we say, ambisexuality or, or uncertain sexuality or, you know, him flirting with uh, being gay at points. Or mostly, don't you think that was for, for the press's, you know, to be, I, to get press attention? That's what I figure. I, I'm not really sure, and I never asked him specifically about that. I'm sure there's probably a lot of things that went into it, but, uh, you know, he was not unaware of uh, media <laughs> attention, right. certainly. Um, but I think, you know, just that in itself, obviously that was emboldening to people of that era where, uh, you know, <laughs> we're in a different time now where gay acceptance is so common and, and acceptable, and it's it's fine with virtually everybody. Boy, it sure wasn't back then. And even even if Bowie wasn't gay and was just playing at it, he certainly uh, appealed to people who were or thought they were or thought they were different and weird and maybe not right. And, you know, that's got to be just, a, and I know it is from talking to people, a very important thing in their lives to have, a signpost. Uh, what else? I, what about, I, I oh, was yeah. Gonna, I, I was going to well, bring you back yeah. to the BCN show. They did at Fort Apache. Oh, yeah. You were there for that, right? Yes, I was the host. You were, the, <laughs> you were not only there, you were the host. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, what do you, what, actually, you want to tell people a little bit about that gig? Okay, sure. Well, uh, it was a point where he was with Reeves, which was a long, was a long period, and he, for some reason, Felt like he would come out, and I guess Boston was kind of favorite for him because Reeves, it was Reeves' hometown, and for whatever reason, he agreed to come to Fort Apache, a small recording studio, a recording studio average size, but small place to see David Bowie, <laughs> and uh, he did five songs acoustically, and the station solicited questions for David Bowie, and we chose them, and I, we vetted them, and I asked them to him, so he'd play a song, and then I would. Actually, the person who wrote the question got to ask it, but I would introduce them, and, mm -hmm. and they'd ask a question, and he'd answer it in a real nice way, as you know. And, I've, um, I've got one to recall. You'll love this, and okay. you'll probably remember it, too. This is great. I, I thought it was one of the best ones. Somebody asked him, if an asteroid was certain to hit the Earth in a week, wiping out civilization, how would Bowie spend his time? And his answer was? apologizing and then he said just in case in other words he didn't really believe there was a god or an afterlife but you never know i asked him a really dumb question the thing is he gave a cool answer i just asked him how do you stay in shape man good question and he said i have a good tailor 
<laughs> Good answer. Yeah, man. The guy's sharp, <laughs> sharp, sharp. There you go. So I will. It's one thing about Bowie is he's very generous and he knows he's freaking out everyone around him, and he will be friendly to compensate for that. And I'm sure you experienced that in the in this event that you mentioned. The real hard part of an interview for me is killing. Like if you're going to go live. On the radio, you have to stand around with that person and wait for them to throw it down to you. And so you have to make small talk. And that's yeah. the hard part because you don't have anything prepared and it's weird. And that was the case in the green room. There was Oedipus, my program director, and there was Reeves, and there was me. Mm -hmm. And it's very, very, very stressful. And Bowie knew that. So what he did to break the stress was he would, he made fun of Reeves. So we could we could all laugh. He said, "Oh yeah, Reeves used to be good. He's no good anymore." Blah right. blah blah, and that was that was cool. And he also did something really cool and generous. I first a couple of years I was in a band, Jeff and Jane Hudson. We mm -hmm. we and we went around and played some gigs, and there happened to be a gig that night. And I guess Reeves had told him that, and he came out and he said, "Let's get this thing going here because Bradley's got a gig with Jeff and Jane Hudson. We don't want him to be late." <laughs> So that was pretty cool. That's fine. Yeah, that looks pretty good on the resume, doesn't it? <laughs> now, as far as the end, I'm, I'm glad, real glad you're here. For my last question. Sure. The last album, I have have not had the ability to listen to it. I saw a couple of the videos, and they shocked me and horrified me. And yep. You know, he's he's in the process of dying when he he does these, and it doesn't look like it's fun. Uh, he makes it look horrific. And I, which was disappointing to me. I would hope he'd give me some insight to make me feel better about passing into the next world. He didn't. How did it? What did you get from this final album? I got the same thing you got. I when I saw those videos. I mean, I saw them. They came out before he died. I saw them before he died and thought, wow, these are powerful. And then he died. Yeah. And I looked at them again and went, oh, my God, not only are they powerful, they're prescient, and they're now. And he's speaking to us as if he's already gone. A very chilling thing to listen to, very beautiful and gorgeous as well, and eerie. And, and I mean, it, it just, it, it was really uh, gobsmacked, you know? Yeah, and there's, uh, is it Lazarus, the video, where he's wrapped up in bandages? Yes, yeah, and that's the one with bandages and, stone, and what stone, stones on his eyes or uh, coins on his eyes. And he makes the interesting choice to use sort of jazz, in, in a way, jazz-based music. Well, well, that, yeah, that's a thing, too. I mean, toward the end, I mean, that's where he was headed. I mean, he, I believe, uh, ran into these guys in the New York club and kind of assembled this jazz band. And, you know, it was, it was like at this point in his life, this is the music that made the most sense to him. So he, you know, grafted his views, his artistic sensibility onto what they did as a band. And came up with an album nobody could have predicted um, you know it was as as far left field as anything he'd ever done and it was a top 10 record uh, critically for me and for many of the people who do what I do uh, it was just so stunning and I will I do have to admit though I haven't gone back to it much because it is so powerful I've, and it makes me so sad it's I, I'll have to do it at some point, but I, I, yeah. I don't know. I'm quite not quite ready yet. No, it's still very fresh. And I mean, you know, the tone we're taking here tonight, 
is, you know, just trying to remember all the good stuff about him and what he meant to us and what he said. And obviously that's what you do after somebody passes. But, um, you know, three years ago tonight, um, you know, I'm sure you felt like I did. It was just this, you know, this numbness and, and sadness. And, you know, for me as a journalist, I had to write a story, which is frankly somewhat therapeutic to do. But, Nevertheless, you know, it's a way of processing grief, I think. I've done this more than a few times. This was one of the hardest ever, no question about it. Jim, uh, it's really great to talk to you you know, in, a, in a professional and personal way. I really, really appreciate it. I appreciate uh, your take on this. But most of all, it's just good to connect with you, and we have to go out and I don't know if you drink beer. Um, vodka martini, vodka martini. Much. All right. Yeah. All right, well, you get that. I'll get a Manhattan, and we'll, we'll uh, chew the fat. We'll paint the town red as as best people of a certain age can do. We will do that. (laughs) It will be a a muted red. A muted red. There you go. Thanks. Thanks very much. Thanks, Bradley. Take care. There you go. Another episode of the Jay Talking Podcast. Remember, you can always catch the show live every weeknight starting Sunday, midnight to 5 on WBZ, Boston's News Radio. You can subscribe to the podcast where you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. And follow me on Twitter for show updates. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.